Tonight we're talking about the late or the middle and late Gaonic period. And this period has some really fantastic highs and lows. We're going to meet some fantastic characters. There's going to be some transformative events. There's going to be some really bad ones, bad characters and bad events, shameful ones, shameful individuals. And again, the Gaonic era is is one where we have a dual leadership structure. This is pivotal to understand this point in history. We have, on one hand, the Etzel art, the Reshtalusa, who's the political leader of the people. He's like a king. He's a descendant of King David. Uh, he was even called a king by the Jews uh, during various periods. He's formally recognized by the authorities. He's the political leader of the people. Now, he was appointed by the religious leaders of the people, which were known as the Gaonim. Gaonim meant they were, they headed the two yeshivas, the flagship yeshivas of, of the Jewish people, one in Sura, other one in Pumbadisa, in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And they each fed off each other. The Reishtralusa, the Etzelar, the political leader, he would appoint the Gaonim, the greatest sage to lead the yeshiva, and the Gaonim would appoint the person worthy, the person of the family King David worthy to be the political leader of the people. Now, I want to start off with one of the more contentious power transfers. There was a Reish Kralusa, a political leader of the people, who died. His name was Shlomo. And authorities differ as to whether or not he didn't have any sons or he had sons but weren't worthy. Either way, there were no sons that were capable of being his successors. But he had two nephews that were worthy. One of them, the older one, his name was Anan. And he was a more brilliant scholar and maybe more gifted, more uh, more uh, consummate uh, a choice. But there were questions about his character and his belief. And his younger brother, Hanania, while he wasn't as brilliant of a genius as his older brother, still he was remarkable in his character and his modesty. So they chose the younger brother and they rejected the older brother. And of course, right now, the Jews of Babylon are living under the Muslim empire. The Muslims now basically controlled the majority of the, of the world in which the Jews were living it in. And they confirmed the decision of the Gaonim and they told Anan, I'm sorry, young man, but you have been rejected and you go on to be a regular citizen. Now, he did not take that easily and he decided to declare himself the Reshtalusa in opposition to the Gaonim and in opposition to the ruling parties. Now, the Muslims have very little tolerance for things that they don't like and that really is not a new thing that's been around for a long time. So they consider that an act of rebellion. You're going against the official uh, stance of the caliphate. And the self-proclaimed Etzel art, the self-proclaimed Reshtalusa, Anan, is thrown into prison, expedited trial. They're going to execute him at the end of the week. In prison, he has this fateful encounter with a Muslim prisoner who was somewhat of a jailhouse lawyer. And he tells him, he advises him that during the trial, he should tell the caliph that he really represents a different religion. And while his brother is the Reish Dolus, the official representative of the Jewish people, he represents a different religious movement. And therefore, it's not treasonous for him to proclaim himself as the representative of his religion. He took that advice seriously. He gets to the trial. He tells the caliph, oh, um, 
I'm not starting up with your rule, with your dominion, with your declaration of my brother as the Reish Talusa, but he represents the Jewish people. I represent a different group. And for whatever reason, the Muslim rulers accepted that claim. They freed him from prison and they encouraged him to take his rule and run with it. And that became the Karaites. This is the beginning of the Karite movement. Now, King Solomon famously says, Ein kol chadash tachat hashamish. There's nothing new under the sun. And I think there's in, in one particular area more than any other. It's especially true for splinter sects of the Jewish people. And we've talked about them already several times, various splinter sects, the Baitusim, the Sadducees. What the Karaites basically did is take the extinct Sadducee philosophy and ideology and just fast forward 700 years and reimpose it once again in Babylon. And they, of course, Anan now has a bone to pick with the rabbis because they were the ones who passed on him to be the Reish Delusa. So he says, I'm inventing a new religion, and the religion is going to eschew the rulings of the rabbis and the oral Torah, and we're going to go with the literal word of the Torah, and only the Tanakh, and thus the term Karite, the word Kara, which means to read, they were scripturalists. They say we are only following the literal word of the Torah. And as we see again and again throughout Jewish history, if there's ever a movement, ever a ground swelling to question tradition, it's always going to gain a certain degree of traction. So all the former Sadducees come out of the woodwork, all the malcontents, all the people that are disenchanted with life, they join this movement and it becomes moderately successful. Now it's interesting, Maimonides, when he has his discussion of the various splinter sets of Judaism, he lumps both the Baitusim and the Sadducees of Yor along with the Karaites in the Gaonic period, and he writes, quote, Each one of the students of Tzadok and Baitus, they pre- uh, pretended that they only believed in the written Torah and only rejected the oral Torah, and they also questioned the transmission of the oral Torah. That's what they said. That's what they professed. They professed that we're, we're following the Torah, not the oral Torah. That's what they professed. Says the Rambam, they only did this to cast off from themselves the orally transmitted obligations of the trees and the enactments. Since they weren't able to reject the whole Torah, they only rejected the oral Torah. What he's saying, and essentially borne out by their behavior, is that they weren't interested in upholding as much as casting off. They wanted to get rid of the Torah entirely, but they knew it would be accepted as disingenuine to get rid of everything because the Jews would never follow that. So they said, oh, the rabbis, they're the ones who are corrupt. Let's get rid of just the oral Torah. And thus, and he writes as well, since these cursed sects arose, continues the Rambam, there are groups of heretics who are in this land, which is Egypt, are called Karaites, and the sages still call them Sadducees and Baitutsi. They're the same thing. And basically, that's the pattern. It's a pattern where a Jewish sect decides they want to abandon Torah. Well, how do you abandon Torah? Just uh, carte blanche. You can't do that. Instead, they'll, they'll just start trimming at the edges and say, well, this is not valid. This is not modern. This is not uh, valuable for us today. This is arcane. This is archaic. This is esoteric. And let's get rid of the tradition brick by brick. Now, the problem with the literal 
and, of course, arbitrary interpretation of Torah is that it results in some really strange things. Because, first of all, if it's literal, then my literal may be different than your literal. So, such a sect inevitably is going to splinter into many, many more sects because I want to read it my way, you read it your way, and we, by definition, have to have a different religion based upon the tenets of this ideology. So, for example, the verse in Shmos, uh, in Exodus chapter 16, uh, says, Al yeitze A man shall not leave his place, his home, his dwelling, on the seventh day. They took that quite literally, which means he never left the house. So the whole Shabbos, they're living in the house. Uh, it says also about Shabbos that you cannot have a fire. Now we know that you can have a fire provided you made the fire before Shabbos. So you got the lights on, you have a fire burning, as long as you didn't do the actual lighting, kindling of the fire on Shabbos. But they, take it literally, got to say everything's dark, can't have any hot food. The verse tells us, we read it a few weeks ago, Ki ani Hashem rofecha, I am Hashem, your healer. Well, if God's our healer, we shouldn't go to any other physician. If you like a doctor, you should keep your doctor. Right? That, that's what they, and we, they like God, and the, the verse says that God's our healer. We're not going to go to any physicians. The holiday of Purim. Well, Purim is a rabbinic holiday. And we celebrate it by festivities. We have a huge, uh, a, a huge meal to celebrate it. They fast on, on Purim to show that they're rejecting the words of the rabbis. They change all the laws to make it uh, arbitrary, and to go deliberately against what the rabbis installed. We actually have a custom today that's ubiquitous across the Jewish world that we have thanks to the Karaites, and that's the Cholent, otherwise known as the Chamin, on Shabbos lunch. You notice every Jewish community, every Jewish home, has this stew, this hot stew that we eat specifically during Shabbos lunch. And the reason why is we're demonstrating that we don't believe what the Karaites believe. You can have a fire on Shabbos, provided you make it before Shabbos. You should have hot food. Not just Friday night, leftover hot food from Friday's heating, but even Shabbos day. Keep it on the fire, because we can have, we're supposed to have, that we're supposed to show that we don't agree with the Karaites. In fact, one of the Rishonim, the Baal Hamor, went as far as to say, someone who does not eat the hot food on Shabbos lunch, we have to check whether or not they're really a heretic. Either way, this movement gains some traction uh, and it does cause some harm to the Jewish people. It didn't thrive for that long. Of course, there are inborn contradictions with such a movement. Everyone is told to interpret the Tanakh literally, so everyone does, and there's various different conclusions. What's the laws? All the laws start to splint in various directions. Uh, additionally, the Gaonim, the great rabbis at the time, mounted a fierce polemical response to the Karaites that totally uh, destroyed them. And therefore, that group kind of, uh, they left Babylon, they went to Egypt, they went to Israel, and eventually most of them converted and became Muslims. Unfortunately, uh, like most schisms in the Jewish world, instead of becoming a bastion of a Jewish community, it's just a channel for Jews to leave. In the Karaites, they left and joined the Muslims. In the 18th and 19th century, many Jews who abandoned Judaism joined the Christians. But regardless, these movements, if one thing is consistent in Jewish history, is that these movements do not last. Today, there's 
a few thousand Karaites left. I think there's one shul in, in Northern California still that's officially a Karaite shul, even though they don't really have a very uh, a very vibrant constituency. Uh, and in Israel, there's a whole debate as to the Jewishness of these. Are they Jewish? Are they not Jewish? It's a good question. So it's an interesting uh, historical anecdote that there were significant groups of Karaites living in the Ukraine. And during the Holocaust, they the Germans had a panel of, of Jews who were in concentration camps but were experts in Jewish history. And they asked them, are the Karaites biologically Jewish? And thanks uh, to some foresight, these three scholars told them that they were not biologically Jewish and spared the Karaites from being slaughtered. Uh, either way, there is some severe destabilization as a result of this movement. It was at its peak during the Gothic era and quickly uh, petered away. But basically, we have the appointment of one racial Lusa that causes the Karaite movement. Uh, when Hananiah died, the younger brother of Anan, there was a question whether or not someone in that family, maybe that's not the right family to use to try to find the replacement. If you remember last week, we spoke about Bastanai, who had two wives. He had a Jewish wife and a Persian wife. Both Anan and Hananiah were from the Jewish wife. And after this whole Karite debacle, they said, you know what, let's scrap this family. Let's go to Bastanai's Persian wife who converted to Judaism, but that family, and let's look over there to find a suitable race to Lusa. And they appointed someone by the name of Zakai Barab Ahunai. He was a descendant of Bastanai's Persian wife, and he became the race to Lusa, and that continued throughout his family. Problem was, is that there wasn't, there were questions, lingering questions as to whether or not he was even Jewish. Remember, Abastani, they took the uh, the daughter of the deposed Persian Sicinian king and gave it to the leader of the Jews as a token. Now she converted, granted, but it's a question of conversion because she only converted to marry the Jew. So it was always in doubt, or at least his detractors would often highlight that to question his legitimacy, A, as a Jew, but certainly as a king. So there was a lot of infighting from these other groups, from these deposed families, to try to usurp the throne. Another candidate from the other family, his name was Nitrunai Bar Habibi. He declared himself Reshtalusa. Various different factions broke out amongst the Jewish people, supporting which one of them is the king of the Jews, basically. Ultimately, this other individual, Natrunai Bar Habibi, he left for Spain. He gets to Spain, just to give an insight to kind of the genius of such people that we're talking about. He gets to Spain. The first thing he does is to write down the entire Talmud from memory. So they should have an extant copy in Spain, which was very distant from the center of Jewish life. And he helped to lay the foundation of the fabulous Jewish community over there. But either way, we see an erosion in the position of the Reish Galusa, whence, you know, there already are uh, debates and schisms, who's the who's the real Reish Galusa, who's the legitimate one. And then the Muslim rulers, they did something which permanently weakened the position by essentially defanging it of its power. Uh, there was another another uh, 
there was another conflict between two individuals, who's going to be the Reish Nalusa. They come to the Muslim rulers and they say, instead of mediating between the two, they made a new rule that every minimum of 10 people from every non-Muslim religion could appoint their own official leader that will be recognized by the caliphate. So essentially now every every minion of Jews could say, we have this guy as our leader, and that will be recognized by the authorities, and thus the Jews are no longer going to be politi- politically united under one Reish Galusa, and the counterweight, so to speak, of Jewish leadership is going to go heavily in favor of the rabbis. And this is a pattern that we do see many times throughout history, Whenever you have the political and religious leaders jockeying, vying for primacy amongst the Jews, very often there's going to be these shifts where the political leaders may initially have tremendous power and it's going to move its way over uh, from kings, from monarchs, from the Hasmoneans, etc., to the Sanhedrin and the great rabbis. So the racial Lusa, they don't no longer have the royal support and even the family that's ensconced in that office is somewhat of a dubious, somewhat of a questionable family, and thus the prestige and the influence of the great yeshivos, they rise correspondingly. I want to look, take a look at some of the great titanic personalities who were great visionaries, of course, but also made very tremendous, significant literary contributions that resonate and inform and inspire until modern times. Remember, the leadership role of the Gaonim was exemplified in many ways. They headed the yeshiva, but also they were the one-stop shop for any question that any Jew may have anywhere in the world. And that's the responsa, where they would, people would write queries and they would write responses that would give the halacha for the Jews all over the world. An interesting aspect of this uh, of, of this process was that this um, the ability to answer any question at any time that number one kept Babylon as the spiritual center of the Jewish people, but also it helped them a lot financially because every Jewish community they could kind of outsource some of their rabbinic responsibilities to the great Gaonim in Surah Pabadisa in Babylon. And they would help pay for the financial requirements of the yeshiva. And we're going to see in a little bit when that gets somewhat uh, weakened, the financial state of the yeshiva is going to go down as well. So let's look at some of the great uh, gaonim of the time. Um, one of them is Rav Amrom uh, Gaon. Amrom, like the father of Moshe. And his major contribution is the Seder Rav Amrom Gaon. Now we know the men of the Great Assembly, they did a lot in the, in the, in the realm of formalization of Jewish practice. So the Siddur, the book of Jewish liturgy, prayer, that was written by the men of the Great Assembly. But it was written, but it was never widely available. You don't have, you can't go to Art Stroll and buy a copy in the uh, 650s, right? So it was mostly memorized. And today we have the chazan. What's a chazan? Why do we, why do we have a chazan? Well, because many, uh, in antiquity, there were many times when there were only a few individuals who knew all the words of the prayer and the order of the prayer because who could memorize all that in their head? 
So they would be the representative of the people, the people would respond. Now today we didn't get rid of that, even though we all have a sitter, we could just read it from the sitter. We still kept that, that, that alive. But it was never formal, it was never written down. So whenever things are not finalized and codified, there's always the risk that disagreements or mistakes or errors can fall in to the text. And a Jewish community in Spain had a problem because they felt that the prayer was a little bit weakened. And they essentially wrote a letter to Rav Amram Gon, who was the Gon in Babylon at the time. And they wanted some more information, some inspiration about prayer. And in his response, he wrote an entire sitter. That was his response, an entire sitter from beginning to end, which had the entire text of all the prayer, weekdays, Shabbos prayers, holiday prayers, festivals, fast days, everything in there. Pretty remarkable. And that became, that was copied, that became the first printed siddur uh, that the Jewish people have had a very significant development. Another important development, the Aruch, which is a dictionary for the Talmud. We saw, we've seen last week that in the Gaonic era, there wasn't a lot of effort put in to try to explain the words of the Talmud because most people knew it. But there were some words that were obscure. Remember, the Talmud was written in Aramaic. And the reason it was written in Aramaic because when it was written in the, in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries of the Common Era, it was written in Babylon, and that was the language of the land there and in Israel, and basically the majority of where the Jewish people were living, that was the common tongue. Well, now you have the Muslims in charge. And the Muslims, they have their language, and that begins to penetrate, infiltrate, and now the Jews are primarily speaking Arabic. And what happens to Aramaic, that becomes a language for the scholars. And thus, a lot of young Jews, or Jews that are beginning to study, are finding it significantly harder to delve into Talmud because it's written in a foreign language. It's, by the way, what we suffer today. We have the Art Stroll Talmud, which is a fantastic modern example of the problem that they faced at that time. Because it's written in English, Aramaic is great if, if you speak Aramaic, but what if you don't speak Aramaic? So we have to have subtitles, right? We have to have explanation. So that's why we have a 73-volume Art Stroll Talmud. Well, at this time... People still spoke Aramaic, or the Jewish community still spoke it, but there was beginning to be some gaps in the dictionary, understanding of all the words. So he wrote a dictionary in the Talmud called the Aruch, which means the it's arranged, it's organized, an organized work of the dictionary of the Talmud. And this was the first of its kind, and it was a forerunner to a much more elaborate work by the same name written a couple of hundred years later, when people today refer to the Aruch, the, the dictionary of the Talmud, generally they're referring to the latter Aruch, the one that was written in the 11th century. And one figure of the Gaonic era that towered above all is Rabbeinu Sa'adya Gon. He was one of the later Gaonim He is essentially during the last of the 400 years, the last hundred, last century of the 400 years of the Gaonic era. And he actually, of the hundred plus Gaonim, 
that reign over this time period, he's the only one to not have been born in Babylon. He was born in Egypt, a place that was not necessarily known as a great Torah center at the time. Now, from a great young age, from a very young age, he demonstrates tremendous Torah genius and also a certain fierce fearlessness to defending Torah. You remember the Karaites, a lot of them left Babylon and went to Egypt. So it became like a hotbed of heresy. And that's where Sa'ad Yergon rises. So at the time he's 20, he's already written his first book, a book on Hebrew grammar. By the time he's 23, he's written many, many volumes of polemics, of arguments, attacks against the Karaites. And he actually managed to stunt their growth and send them kind of fleeing. He, the, the, the Karaites were never really able to respond to his fiercely lucid and logic, uh, logical arguments against them. They, of course, didn't take that lightly. They would publicly insult him, and they even burned down his house, along with many, many writings. He eventually moved to Israel. Uh, there was a dispute in Israel at the time about the Jewish calendar, and he quelled that by writing yet another book at the astonishingly young age of 46. He moves to Babylon and becomes the head of the yeshiva in Sura. Today, we have 24 books authored by Sa'ad Yagon, and that's only the ones that have survived the 1,200 years or 1,100 years since he lived. There's many, many more, I'm sure, that we don't have them. One of the most important books of the era, and certainly the magnum opus of Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon's life, is the Emunos Vedeos, Emuna from the word faith or belief, and Deos from the word Deya, knowledge, faith and knowledge, which is a systematic explication of Jewish philosophy that has withstood the test of time. It's 1,100 years hence, and it's still considered one of the foundational books of Jewish theology, philosophy, and our Weltanschauung, our way of thinking about the world. Now, just briefly, what some of the areas that he discusses, um, he's essentially writing a response to the various philosophical heresy of the time. And this is an interesting, again, another pattern throughout Jewish history, is that Torah doesn't change. We're told in Deuteronomy that this is the word of God, it doesn't change. But the various heresies do. And the Greek philosophy that to us is something very arcane, was very powerful during the medieval times. And that's why we see the responses of Rabbi Sa'adiodron. Of course, Maimonides wrote a whole book called The Guide to Perplex, The Morn of Uchem, which is a response to Greek philosophy because that was the dominant way of looking at the world at the time. Now, things have changed, and therefore the, the battle, so to speak, with Torah, with the Torah world, against our detractors is always changing, and that's why the fight is always changing. But it's interesting, he has to, he wrote books that argued with uh, very powerful logic, number one, that the universe was not, did not always exist, because remember, the Greeks always believed in an eternal universe, the world's been around forever, 
In fact, that is actually a belief that lasted a very long time. Only in modern times, in the 1960s, did it become the scientific fact that the first word of the Torah, Bereshus, there was a beginning, was accepted universally. But he had to write a response to that because that was the heresy of the time. The Creator is one, not the Trinity nonsense. Man has a soul. The Torah was given to us by the Almighty at Sinai. We have free will. The basic core fundamental tenets of Judaism, he wrote an entire book that organized it. He also translated the Tanakh into Arabic, again, responding to the needs of his generation. And Maimonides, um, several hundred years later, he captures the scope of the influence of Rabbeinu Sa'adya Goen by writing, quote, were it not for Sa'adya, the Torah would almost have disappeared from among Israel. Again, every uh, several generations, we see a figure that just is able to almost single-handedly redirect the Jews back to Judaism. Uh, if there's any individual that is most responsible for stemming the tide and the catastrophe, catastrophe of the Karaites, it would be Rabbeinu Sa'adigon. Now, at the end of the Gaonic era, the two yeshivos are going to decline and the structure of the Jewish world is going to be upended and it, the era is going to end. There's a few reasons why the yeshivas decline. Now remember, these yeshivas were not, there were many yeshivas, there's always been yeshivas, but these were not like a yeshiva for a town or for a region. These were yeshivas that were the center and accepted by the entire Jewish world as being the epicenter of Jewish life. They were, these were the flagship yeshivas of the Jewish people, and that's why the two leaders are called the Gaonim, and they are recognized officially as being the leaders of the people. Yeshivas existed everywhere throughout all times in Jewish history, but specifically, we're talking about yeshivas in this context, that means the yeshivos that are accepted as the universal uh, home of the Jewish people. That suffered as a result of several factors. Number one is regional instability. The Muslims, who brought a lot of stability to the region and to the world, because uh, they had an entire empire that spanned the, much of the Jewish world, they had factionalism amongst themselves. They had the Turks who got involved, whole story how they got involved, the Omayyads in Spain, the Fatimites in Egypt. They each kind of created their own little region. Of course, they were worried as well about religious matters. Which one of us are the real Muslims, the Shiites, the Sunnis, and all these other various groups? And that meant that the once unified empire is broken up into smaller parts. So if you're a Jew living in Egypt, or you're a Jew living in Morocco, or you're a Jew living in Spain, you're kind of not linked anymore to Babylon. You want to go study. Where are you going to study? You can't travel there. You, you know, that's, it's a different region now. It's much harder to have the free flow of people and of ideas when there's war amongst the two localities. So that's number one. The student body is going to diminish. Number two, questions. The questions that always made their way from various parts of the world to Babylon started to peter out because of these new conditions. Another factor, competition. The yeshivos were victims of their own success. They managed to mold and craft their graduates who came from all over the world 
to being very competent Torah giants in their own right, who went back to their local hometown and started their own institution. So their own graduates became their competition. So yeshivas of high caliber sprout up all across North Africa and Spain and Egypt, even parts of Europe as well. Additionally, Sura and Pumpadisa, that were once the uh, not only the spiritual headquarters of the Jewish people, but also large population centers, that begins to change when and Jews start moving out of those cities into the main cities, the urban cities, primarily of Baghdad. So the masses of people start leaving, and that weakens the community. And additionally, there is, over various times, uh, a lack of worthy candidates for the Gaonim. So, for example, when Rabbeinu Sa'adir Gaon died, the, everyone agreed that there's no one who can fill his shoes. So Sura, w- w- the, one of the twin towers, one of the two mega yeshivas had to close down and had to consolidate with the other yeshiva. And for 45 years, in the middle of the Gaonic era, one of those yeshivas, Sura, was closed. There were, of course, continual disputes with the Rashi Galusa, and lastly, there were financial difficulties. Like we said, the questions helped with the flow of income for the yeshivos. Questions start to slow down, income suffers. The community begins to disperse, a smaller community, a smaller base to fundraise for. And of course, you have the rise of yeshivas elsewhere. And then normally the Jews all over the world would send their tzedakah money to Babylon but now you got to support your homegrown institutions. And that's essentially a tension that still exists today. You have growing Torah communities, and people say, wait a minute, why are we sending our charity money to Babylon a thousand miles away when our own kids are going to local yeshivos and we have to support them as well, and the local rabbis and local scholars? Eventually, all these conditions caused Sura and Pumpadisa to move to Baghdad and to abandon their homeland or their home center where they were bulwarks and stalwarts of Torah greatness for 600 years. And they moved to Baghdad, both of them, even though they kept their namesake city as their name. So it was the Shiva of Pumpadisa, Yeshiva of Sura, currently located in Baghdad. That's actually a tradition that has been maintained since that time. In the year 1817 in Poland, in a small little shtetl called Mir, a yeshiva was founded. That yeshiva is still extant today with various branches in the United States and in Israel. And the name of the yeshiva is still the Mir Yeshiva, even though it's a thousand miles from Poland and probably a million miles from Poland, not geographically, but ideologically. But they kept the name. So you have names, Slabotka. Slabotka was a town in Lithuania. There's a yeshiva called Slabotka today. Tells, uh, Brisk. These are all names of towns that are still names of yeshivas today. Hasidic dynasties would do the same. The Ger dynasty, Satmer, all these names. Where did much Satmer come from? Well, they were from a town called St. Mary's. St. Mary's, Yiddishize it, you call it Satmer. And now you move to to New York, and you're the Satmer branch in New York. Either way, there's another important story here that underscores, or at least embodies, what happened 
at the end of the Gaonic era, and that's the episode of the four captives. The yeshivas were suffering from severe economic crises, and when a yeshiva has a financial problem, they have to fundraise. Well, who do you send to fundraise? It would be great if you could send some underling, but you, you want to go fundraise in, in Africa or in Egypt. They're going to look at some administrator. That's not, I don't want to give it to the administrator. I want to give it to the head of the yeshiva. So all the heads, four heads of the yeshiva made a joint fundraising trip and were kidnapped. And were kidnapped in the Mediterranean Sea by pirates who weren't looking for money, but were looking for slaves. And they kidnapped the four great giant, Torah giants, and they go to slave markets and sell them off. And they knew they were Jewish, and they know that if you capture a Jew, they command a high price because the Jewish community wants to buy their own. And this is a remarkable, fortuitous episode because the writing was on the wall that Babylon is going to no longer, or not, not for much longer, be the center of Jewish life. Problem is, is all the great rabbis are coalesced in Babylon. You have great Jewish communities elsewhere with relatively smaller bodies of clergymen, certainly not people of the caliber of the great Gaonim. So these four rabbis are kidnapped and are sold in slave markets to Jewish communities, one in Alexandria, one in Fez in Morocco, one in Tunis and Tunisia, and last one in Sicily. And these individuals end up building amazing yeshivos and Torah centers as the official recognized leader in their new town that they, uh, their new adopted hometown. So an event that really is, I guess it would be scary. Great rabbis get kidnapped. That doesn't sound very good. But ultimately, this is preparing the new frontier of Jewish life after Babylon. But of course, this further weakened Surah and Pumpadisa when they lost a lot of their great leaders. And again, this is, at least in hindsight, we can see this as a blessing in disguise because now the groundwork has been laid for future dynamic Torah communities elsewhere in the world. At the twilight of the era of the Gaonim and the era of the great yeshivos, there's several shining stars that rise amongst the people. And the last two Gaonim of Pumpadisa, Rav Shreiragon, and particularly his son, Rav Haidon, who's going to be the last of the Gaonim, they oversee, they steward a temporary renaissance of these centers. So Rav Shreiragon, first of all, he's chiefly responsible for reopening the Shivan sewer that had closed. He was successful to a certain degree to strengthen the ties between the community in Babylon, the community elsewhere that was suffered. He reigned for an unprecedented long time. It was 30 years ago. And the reason why that's so impressive is because they took the venerated sage of the Jewish people. Oftentimes that would be someone who's very old. But his son... Rav Haigon was his father's assistant from the very early age of 29. At the age of 46, he became the Afbeis and the head of the court. And at the age of 59, while his father was still alive and aged 92, 
he took over as Dov. This is the only time in history, in the 400 years of Gaonic era, where a father and son reigned simultaneously. He was already 92 years old and getting old, still sharp like a tack, but he abdicated his throne to his son Rav Haidon, and under Rav Haidon's leadership, Pumpadisa had a resurgence. Thousands of students from all over the world once again came to the great yeshiva in Pumpadisa. Uh, we're told by the Ravid, who lived several hundred years later, quote, Rav Hai disseminated more Torah amongst Israel than all the Gaonim who preceded him. In his light walked all those who thirsted for Torah. None of the Gaonim were his equal. It's ironic that the end of the Gaonic era sees such a great visionary and leader and teacher. He also was very prolific in his writing of responsa. We have thousands upon thousands of responsa that he wrote. Of course, not all of them survived. Um, but essentially, a third of the entire body of Gaonic responsa comes from Rav Haidon, the last of the Gaonim. And what's remarkable about him is that he would answer in whatever language the query came in. So someone writes a question in Arabic, I write them in Arabic as a response. Someone writes a question in Hebrew, no problem. Hebrew is a response. Aramaic, whatever you want. So even though the is kind of a, a, an overall diminishing of the stature of the yeshiva, it has this rise at the end. Rav Haidon, when he died in the year 1038, it's essentially accepted as the end of the Gonic era. There were some individuals who did head the yeshiva and were called Gon by their contemporaries at the time, but historically that marks the end of this era. The reason why it does, because of all conditions that we mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean those yeshivas closed, it just means that they were downgraded from being a yeshiva for the entire nation to being a yeshiva for the local or maybe even the regional population. But thankfully, like we see in Jewish history, one door closes, another opens, the sun sets here and it rises elsewhere. The next frontier of Jewish leadership of Torah giants is already in motion elsewhere. If you remember, the four captives, one of them is Rav Chushil Gaon, and he ends up in Fez, Morocco, and he's there with his son, Rabbeinu Hananel. Rabbeinu Hananel is a very pivotal character in Jewish history because he's the one who really represents this turnover. He's from the Gaonic era leading into the Roshonim era that will follow, and he is represented by the various different roles that the rabbis are going to play. His student, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi, Rabbi Yitzhak from Fez, is known as the Rif, one of the great Rishonim of all time, who would end up in Spain, of course, and headline the great Spanish Torah era of the 11th and 12th centuries. Two years after Rav Haidon died, in the year 1040, a baby is going to be born in Troyes, in France, who's going to go on to illuminate the world with Torah. Of course, we're referring to the greatest of the Ashkenazic Rishonim, Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak, known everywhere by his acronym Rashi, and he is going to headline the next era of Jewish leadership 
and that's going to be the Rishonim. So again, during the era of the Gaonim, it was a, a, a cementing of the Talmud as being the official recognized work of the Oral Torah. You see a lot of tremendous innovations by the great Gaonim, a lot of unparalleled geniuses. Of course, the role of the Gaonim of the time is to answer questions because the population, most of them already knew the Talmud. The Talmud was well known to all. In the next era of the Rishonim, there's going to be tremendous Herculean efforts to write commentaries on the Talmud and also to formalize, organize, and codify halacha.